term. It was, uh, it was like a shot in the arm, if I can use that phrase in, in, in this climate. It's kind of massively encouraging for believers. You should have left here or uh, 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 turned off your YouTube uh, empowered. It's good on Pentecost, isn't it, to remember those truths, that we are chosen, that we are empowered, and we are sent. And those were what we enjoyed uh, last week. And uh, these truths have, have kept Christians going. You know, when you're in a, uh, a, a, a church that seems to do the same thing week in, week out, or on the front lines of missions, or, or whether in a different scenario, being uh, chosen, empowered, and sent is, is this wonderful uh, uh, truth to hold dear and to, to keep your uh, spiritual life uh, vibrant and expectant. And so that was really good, but um, we're going to move into uh, uh, back into this Exodus story. And as we enjoy those things, I, I want to bring a, uh, a note of realism to the situation that we're dealing with in, in Egypt. There is a humanitarian crisis for the Jews uh, in Egypt. They were despised, they were impoverished, they were wretched, they were the bottom of the pile. They were in an empire of plenty, uh, uh, they just ruled all these lands and had all this power and influence and monuments to their name. And the Jews were the worst. Sometimes it's not easy as British people as people living in this developed nation to understand that. We haven't necessarily really rubbed up against true poverty, true wretchedness, true um, hatred from other people. And uh, so I just want to read to you uh, the experience of uh, some people going on in London right now. Um, and it says this. There is a uh, fiddler that this uh, reporter is talking to him. He says, I can't take it anymore. Today I only made 15 pounds. All day I went trying to play music for the Arabs and they gave me nothing. I saw them coming in and out of the golden places, but they gave me nothing. They couldn't even see me. The fiddler is distraught about the police. They have shocked him. They are white, they are brown, they are even black, and they keep coming up to him and confiscating his money. You need to hear this powerlessness, this wretchedness uh, that this guy is describing. But there is nothing he can do when he loses a day of fiddling for coins. He barely knows even how to say hello and bye. He is in a different culture. He can't speak the language. He doesn't know how to relate and to get his point across. They keep stealing our money. There was a big black man and I did not believe there could be a black man who was a policeman at first, but I was wrong. He came up to me and said, I am not allowed to beg, and he took my money. Why does the Queen of England allow this to happen? And I write this all in my notebook. The Roman never sleep alone. I am an invisible village with its saints, thieves, confusion, and fools. That's not the Jewish experience in Egypt, I don't know what it is. My eyes run along the line of faces in the tunnel. Some are dozing, some are sleeping, others are still begging. Some I cannot quite make out. There are now more than 35,000 Roma in London and thousands living like this. The fiddler pads uh, himself down. The villager next to him is too exhausted to talk. The beggar's face is sunken, banged, and clings, uh, banged and clings to his cheekbones as his chewed lips hangs open. 
His beady black eyes try to focus on me under a moth-nibbled hood before falling asleep, bedding into the side of the fiddler just to keep warm. The city has no snow, but the damp it still gets under your skin. The fiddler yawns, there is not much to eat. The villagers have been bin rummaging once again, and they have found a few sandwiches being thrown out round the back of Pret-a-Manger. They have foraged some stale Arabic flatbreads and chew them with a squishy processed sausage. There are a few pieces of cheese too, but that's quickly gone. The fiddler does not eat. He covers his face with his tattooed hand and starts talking about former days. Things should not have turned out the way they have. Fiddler says he has always lived this life in and out of rules. Tucked into his pocket is a scuffed and thumb New Testament. But he doesn't want it. What the fiddler wants is a dictionary. There is no other way to make back the debt. If I had a dictionary, I could do everything. I'd do anything. So we have this situation of, of the Roman Jews, and it describes the Jewish situation where they, there is no power, there is no voice, there is no, uh, there is no hope. There is just the drudgery of poverty. Uh, and uh, it is brutal for them. And there is a hopelessness and despair that hopefully comes out of that account and hopefully uh, uh, you can uh, uh, imprint onto the Jewish experience. And now, an 80-year-old man is being asked to challenge this hopelessness, this despair, this wretchedness. And I hope, I pray, I really think that we should look in and just see it's not just impossible, but it's unthinkable. There is no way that these Jews can be restored. They are at the bottom. They have no voice, no hope, no strength. They live today, today, just to survive. And then God speaks. And suddenly, there's a light in this dark tunnel. And it says this, if you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 3, and it says this. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, what is his name? What, what shall I tell them? Moses can see that when he speaks and says, I have been sent to free you, the Israelites are going to turn around and go, have you not seen our situation? Have you not seen our voicelessness? Have you not seen our poverty? And Moses is told, um, Moses is told that God will be his credentials. And then Moses says, yeah, but, but who are you even? And then he says this, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. If God is Moses' credentials and he comes to the Israelites with this credential, then the Jews will say, hey, what? If you were a uh, God-loving Jew, you would have thought someone that says, I come from the God of Abraham, you would listen to them. But Moses knows his background, uh, his situation and his mission is doomed from the beginning. The Jews were like, who are you? What is your God that you bring? And the Jews will want to know more. The Jews will peer into this unfamiliar face. 
and say, what is this God that you serve? And they'll probably write off Moses. He is uh, a white-suited, health and wealth, prosperity preacher come to tickle their ears with fancies that will never appear. And they say, who are you? And Moses re uh, imagines this situation and goes, I need more than this. I need more than just to be told, uh, I am the God of your forefathers. And the Heavenly Father, wonderfully, he goes, you know, I see your point. You've got, you got, you got fair logical points there, Moses. Uh, let me answer you. Scripture sometimes deals harshly with people who question God. You know, there are all sorts of occasions where people laugh and uh, dismiss and uh, like want more proof. And often they don't come off very well. And it's often because they have a sense of authority and power already invested in them. They already should know something about God. God shouldn't need to explain himself to someone that's already familiar with the Almighty. And, and so they get a bad rap in Scripture. Because they're implying he's untrustworthy or unreliable or unreal. But we should recognise in Scripture that God loves the inquiry from the struggling person, from the person that doesn't know God very well, from the person that is asked to do something impossible, for the person uh, uh, that is new to all of this. I love the way new believers ask all sorts of ridiculous things from God that God would never answer me for. And the new believer will come in and uh, all sorts of amazing things happen because there is a start of that relationship and he wants to reveal and bring them in and draw them nearer. And so there is this encouragement. If you have a genuine curiosity of God, if, it, if it's not a case of God, well, prove yourself, but I want to know more. I want to draw nearer. I want to, I want to be more like your son, God. God smiles and says, you know what, that is a fair question. You come to me with an honest and humble heart and I will uh, be delighted in sharing something more with you. And sometimes this is more information. Sometimes we're given a little bit more revelation. And sometimes, and I prefer it, when God just gives him just gives us more of himself. We come with an inquiry and he goes, what you don't need is an actual uh, factual answer, but what you need is more of my presence. And more of God is far better than any other answer you could uh, uh, have. And so we have this case in Exodus uh, um, chapter 3. And we get this privileged moment. This single encounter is often regarded as the most important moment in the whole of the Old Testament. Of all the different holy occasions, this is possibly the most remarkable. God presents uh, what is uh, known by theologians as the tetragrammaton, and, and basically you have these four uh, Hebrew uh, letters. And uh, if you're reading it from left to right, welcome to Hebrew, because you go the other way. And uh, so you uh, read yod Hey war Hey, And that is this name of God that he reveals in this moment. 
and it is unpronounceable. There are no vowels, uh, and uh, theologians have loved looking over this for thousands of years, and every interpretation under the sun has been brought to this. And if you read the history of uh, faithful followers who have looked into this, there is an extraordinary wealth of material. And God says, I am, and I am who I am. Sounds like a cryptic uh, uh, um, quiz. But in this phrase, I am, he conveys his presence in the now. He conveys his power, you know. He doesn't refer to anyone else. His, his existence is not dependent on any other force of nature. He is of himself. And we find this mystery of who he is and an eternal, an eternal presence conveyed in these simple four letters, in this simple tetragrammaton. And I would be really tempted to tell well, what you need to know is this small thing. This is the aspect that Moses needs to know here, but I don't want to reduce it. I want to leave this name of God in all its majesty, in all its mystery, in all its wonder. I don't want to package up God and go, oh, so what you need to know is God is with you while you're stacking shelves in Sainsbury's or while you're shopping in the co-op. I want to say I am is bigger than that. Listen to this great phrase um, by a guy called Carl Henry, and he says this. At the centre of revelation stands the God who names himself. It's the opposite of the pets that we take charge of and name, uh, and their name is forced upon them. God names himself. His self-declosed name is a distinctive feature of this revelation. He is not a magical power inhabiting a local site. He is not an artfully embroidered literary fiction. He is no flimsy mystery at the limits of knowledge. All these are different ways of conceiving of God and they are not true of Yahweh. No impersonal principle speculatively postulated to make human sense of the universe, as Nietzsche might say. God, who makes himself known by name, is the ultimate spirit that peoples the invisible world which bounds and defines human destiny. If you don't understand that, I just want you to say just want you to hear that he is magnificent and worthy and not what you expect. And then there's this little account here that I'd like to read. This Hebrew presentation of Yahweh, solely um, by his revealed name, utterly baffled those who religion centred on visible images. The, general, uh, the Roman general Pompey, for example, was completely confounded when in the first century BC he entered the Holy of Holies. The sacrilege of this uh, uh, would have been incredible. He entered the Holy of Holies and found in the sanctum of God's special presence nothing. No art, no picture, no statue, no visible presence at all. 
To the Hebrews, God's revelation meant Yahweh's utterance of his name. And Hebrew religion consisted of hallowing that divinely revealed name. This is a faith that is not man-made. It is distinctive amongst all the other religions. All the pagans look on and go, what? What does your God look like? And we go, we know his name. There is a holy moment here. It's full of energy and promise. And you know what? When Moses took off his sandals to become vulnerable, it was well worth the experience that he was going to enjoy. Everything we think we know about God is too small. It is too derivative. It is too inadequate. Every time you think you can get a grasp on God, you have just made him small. And that smallness is not God at all. He is Yahweh. He is I am. He is something that doesn't need your praise, doesn't need your faith, but he loves you. As God speaks his name and Yahweh is announced, it's an invitation to lean in to find this presence of God. Allow his majesty and holiness and creativity to overwhelm us. Allow it to underpin us, to inspire us, to get us on our feet in praise. You've got to Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 3, just continuing this tiny uh, passage. Uh, we are inching through this. Um, I reckon uh, the next decade might see us through the story of Moses. And then it says this in Exodus chapter 5, um, 3.15. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, a phrase that we are uh, increasingly familiar with as a, as a way of summing up God's faithfulness in the past. He has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. I hope you can hear the importance of this revealed name of God, the I Am, Yahweh. Go assemble the leaders, the elders of Israel, and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and seen what has been done to you in Egypt. This situation of the Roma in uh, London is sort of parallel. And I promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt, to bring you out of the slums, to bring you out of the hopelessness, to bring you out of the poverty, to bring you out uh, of that place which is miserable, into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey. We looked at the uh, wonderful importance of milk and honey previously. And so with this comforting, energising, holy name of God ringing in his ears, Moses is called to speak to his people and we need to remember who Moses is again. Moses was rudely taken from his people when he was newborn. He was put in that uh, papyrus 
sort of ark and put on the river uh, where he was adopted by Egyptians. He is the person that tried to rescue uh, a slave from a slave driver and then uh, uh, was hunted down by the Egyptians, but he was rejected by the Israelites. Even though he tried to save one of their own, they looked at him and said, you are a murderer. Moses is a murderer. He is Egyptian educated. And now he's been wandering as a nomad with a bunch of other nomads for 40 years. Who is he to bring hope to these people that are lost to spies and have no avenue for rescue? Who is he? If you're a Jew, you go, that is what I expect to look like. Generations, 400 years, the Hebrews have cried out. And now they are saying, this guy? What's God's plan? Reminds me of a joke. A man is walking next to a cliff. And suddenly the earth gives way. And he falls head over heels over the edge. And he manages, just as he is falling, to grab a plant growing on the side of the cliff. Hanging far, far off the ground. He yells out, God, please help. He keeps saying, God, please help. And finally, he hears a voice. And it's thunderous and majestic, exactly as you would expect from God. And uh, God says, so, do you believe in me? And the man goes, yes, yes, of course. And then God says, do you trust me? And the man hanging for dear life goes, yes, yes, I trust you. I can't hang much here much longer. Get on with it. And then the voice says, then let go. The man pauses, takes a good look around, and says, is there anyone else out there I can talk to? <laughs> it's so easy when we think about help, about our own rescue, to imagine as time goes on what form it will take. And I've done this as much as anyone else. When we're hard up, we expect God to reply with money. When we are lonely, we expect God to reply with a partner. When we are sick, we expect God to answer with a healing. These are the things that we know we need. But for those who love God, the end game is not just to be a fixer of your problems. I do not seek to just be the installer of roadblocks for my children. I do not seek to just be the uh, fitter of light bulbs for my wife. And my wife certainly doesn't want to be reduced to just the cooking of food. This relationship our family has is not about fixing stuff for each other. And the same is with God. He is not just to be reduced to someone that fixes your problems. He wants to draw you near. He wants to love you. He wants you to know his presence. Because that is what your soul was made for. He is not the great whoever you want him to be. You don't get to call him the name you have chosen for him. He has chosen his own name. He is the independent, creative and unchangeable I am. And you need to and I need to recognise this. This is the name we get to call him. 
This is how we are to think of him. This is how we are to live. And this is how the Israelites were being instructed to think of God. Now we've certainly been enjoying the, uh, the Chosen series. And this very same tendency of calling God the name we have chosen for him. We're seeing in Jesus' life too. The wise men that came to look for Jesus, where did they go? They didn't go to the tumble-down shed. They went to Jerusalem. They went to the temple. That is where the Messiah is going to kick in, isn't it? The Pharisees, they expected a Messiah who would be morally pedantic and would tie his herbs as well like they did. And the rank and file Jew, when they cheered Jesus uh, into the city, they expected a warrior who would overthrow the Romans and everyone got it wrong. This is the great I am, not the great whoever you want me to be. Jesus was homeless. He ate with people that other people frowned at. He was the peace-loving carpenter who rebuked someone who wanted to use a sword on, his, uh, 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 on the policeman arresting him. Don't tell God what he should be like. That is the point of the great I am. He is far better, far richer, far more mysterious, far more omnipotent and far more lovely than any name you can choose for him. His love, his nearness, his power are far superior than anything that we could wish for, dream or imagine. He's better than anything you could possibly conceive of. Now, in this Exodus passage, right at the end that we read out, uh, we hear that the Israelites are taught everything they need to know about God Almighty. He has seen them. They are uh, seen. If that thing in the, uh, the Roma, we're talking about they're, they're just invisible, no one cares, they just walk by us. And God says, no, I see you, Jews. The Egyptians don't see you, but I see you. I see your sadness, I see your cares, I see your worry. And this empathy I have for you, I'm going to bring action. I'm going to do something where I will rescue you. I'm not going to make you rulers of Egypt. I'm going to do something different. Their belief is not in vain. They haven't backed the wrong God. And this salvation that he promises them has substance. There are people now living in the land that they're going to be given. Then they're going to be chucked out and Israel will live there. It is a concrete plan with concrete benefits that you can take to the bank. And in this divine speech we hear something that we need to hear. What these Jews are being told, we can be told. We are seen in whatever state of mind we are existing in at the moment. Rescue is assured. It might not look like you expect it to, but it is guaranteed. And ultimately we have been prepared a place. And when Jesus talked about place, he didn't talk so much about land flowing with milk and honey. He often talked about a wedding feast. Now I'm a bit of a book magpie in the fact that I will try and read as much as I can and draw out stuff 
for sermons to encourage and to uh, bring to life bits of the Bible that we might become over familiar with. And I'm going to finish with a Polish registrar's wedding story. Um, it is uh, uh, fantastic. So I've read this so many times uh, this week and um, just get emotional. And I'm hoping that it's not just because I am um, I'm an easy touch, uh, but hopefully uh, you will find in this wedding story a, uh, a restating of this land of milk and honey, a, a, an invitation to look forward to eternity, an invitation to not just live for this world, but look into the future. And if I found it helpful, maybe one or two of you will. And uh, we'll see how we go on. I'd uh, much rather read uh, something that I don't get emotional about. I'd much rather read something that just sounds uh, uh, clever. But I kind of feel I have to read this out. So we'll see how we go. <laughs> so, uh, so this is a registrar that this um, uh, sort of journalist has gone around and he's sort of talking to the um, sort of the less well-known aspects of London life. And he goes, um, and this is registrar was talking. There was this couple um, that I cannot forget because they were so beautiful to me. It's quite a bit to read as well, so we better get on And I laugh and that hopes we get over it. Um, they were so beautiful to me because they were like the future to me. And they had come to our office and they had to fill out the form and I noticed they were getting married in the Polish church and I looked up and said, oh, that's my church. And I saw that there was this very tall guy standing next to this woman and he was a black African. And uh, um, there was this very beautiful, very pale, blonde Polish girl standing next to him. And, and so I took them upstairs to the room where we decide everything and I saw how the African was saying nothing, and that the Polish girl was the speaker, and they told me they'd met in the Megamart in Catford, and uh, um, that he was a security guard, and she was a checkout girl, and they'd fallen in love. And now, um, um, wanted to marry here, and never leave Catford. What a fairy tale that is, eh? Never leave Catford. Right, here you go. But I saw um, he was saying nothing, and when I finished the conversation, and went, you're getting married on this day and this day. And then I saw... <laughs> I saw the relief on the face of the man. <laughs> I wish I had a <laughs> I saw the relief on the face of the man, like he'd been underwater and was coming out and breathing. Because when the Polish girl was talking, he looked so worried. And he'd been... <laughs> been so silent. He was so hunched and he'd looked hunted, like he wanted to hide. His body language was the body language of this big, tall, proud man, was the body language of fear. He was scared of me, he was coming to me to get married, but he was trembling, like he was going to be arrested, and I gave him the papers. And the couple, they thanked me. They were so happy, they were flushing, they were laughing. Because they said 
that what I've done was a miracle. To help them, to make them safe, to allow them to love. And the Polish girl said, thank you, thank you for not take, taking the police from us. Because we thought we were going to get come and get married, and he would get arrested, and the Home Office would come and take my love away from me to the concentration camps. Obviously, it's a really inappropriate passage as well for me to be reading, if you know my background. Uh, because the lover of the checkout girl, the security guard, he was an illegal immigrant. The Polish girl looked at, at her with watery blue eyes. Uh, then she spoke to the registrar like a friend might. Please come to our wedding. And this is why four weeks later the registrar arrived at the Polish church. The Czechoko was all in fluffy white and the security guard was in a tailored suit. But he was not the man she'd remembered. His smile was over half of his face. His back was as straight as a lamppost, and his voice boomed with laughter, and he hugged everyone with both arms. The church was packed with Polish and Nigerians, and the close and the close ones, those who knew the story, they rushed up to the registrar and touched her like an angel. The Nigerian mothers in shiny blue head wraps dashed up to her to bless her. The Polish cousins in polyester suits and fresh buzz cuts rushed up to thank her for not taking him away. So we get this sense of just the, uh, the backstory of it, and I really enjoy this. And the party that took place that night was just a pebble dash house um, of this uh, rich guy, and he owned it. He was the only one living there, he even had space for a car out front. He was the cousin of the security guard and manager of the Catford Megabart. He had covered his whole house in plastic sheets so it wouldn't get dirty. But when the guests arrived, they rushed into the garden, and there was even a marquee out there. And when the register went in it, there was nobody there, just an important chief sitting there from Thamesmead in Crimson Roads. Uh, uh, crimson robes and a red brimless hat, just like a fez. And the guests kept arriving, arriving, the food kept being served, and I want you, this is heaven, okay? Um, even if you're neither Polish nor Jew, and I really like this picture. After all that, uh, waiting and worrying and planning, the guests kept arriving, the food kept being served. There was whiskey and palm oil wine and red rice with planting and tisky beer and uh, sour cream soup and a whole trays of cassava, fufu and amalo. And the builders were laughing and the security guards were coming and the cleaners were starting to dance with the pickers and the plasters and they were moving closer, closer to the carers. And there was one song, then another, Polish rock, then Nigerian dance, and as everyone became lightheaded and lost themselves in the swirl of smiles, where your heart flutters and you might even meet someone, that evening turned very slowly into the palest blue, and this colour hung uh, glacially fading for hours over the semi-detached, where everyone was clapping and dancing on the clumpy lawn, boxed in by wooden fences and untrimmed hedges. This was one of those lingering, beautiful fallings of the light. There is only in England in the early summer, 
when the light clings to the city and the air becomes muggy and the midges come out and something strange happens to all of us who have chosen to make our lives so far north. The colour over everything became lilac, then pink, and the moment came when the mamas in wrappers uh, began arranging the plastic garden chairs in one big circle. This was when the couple came out. They were so bright. They were so bright. They were wearing orange robes that were covered with patterns of black circles that meant unity. And round their necks hung pink coral necklaces in huge lattice draped over their shoulders. They wore crowns of coral beads sewn together out of hundreds of tiny, shiny orange carved pieces. And they danced. They danced between the golden chairs. <laughs> the security guard, he thrust his shoulders out, so proud. And the checkout girl, she danced. With her hands in the air and twirled towards him. Oh dear. <laughs> Jesus is looking forward to an eternity with us. He is smiling broader than any Nigerian uh, can possibly uh, uh, get near. And we will smile back. And we will dance better than any young Polish bride. And we will feast, and it will be worth it. Please manage it. God, thank you that you are the I am. God, help us not to name you, but allow your name to stand. And may we worship you in your truth. And uh, uh, Lord God, um, I just thank you that you see us. That you have rescue planned for us, and there is a land of milk and honey. There is a wedding feast to look forward to that's going to knock our socks off. That uh, whatever trouble we endure for a time here is nothing compared to this wedding feast when Jesus will look on us, his bride, and be delighted and smile and dance. Amen.